the MIBN e-scooters, learning a bit more. This is Wheel Life. Legal reflections on vulnerable road users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wheel Life. I'm Caroline Hall of the AC Beachcross Solicitors. And I'm Emily Formby of 39 Essex Chamber. Today we have a guest, don't we Emily? Oh, we do. It's so exciting, Caroline. We love a guest. And we have a special guest. Paul Yadmorian is the Public Affairs Officer at Motor Insurance Bureau with a particular interest in e-scooters. So, welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. Perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about your journey within MIB and the e-scooter world. My journey with the MIB started in 2018. I joined to help the MIB bottom out the effects of leaving the EU and the impacts it would have on MIB and to deal with those impacts. And as that part of the work faded away, it became clear there were plenty of other issues that were carrying on and e-scooters was one of them. So from 2019 onwards, I've been taking the lead on e-scooters in the MIB, essentially trying to ascertain what the government's plans were for privately owned e-scooters, which at the moment are illegal for use on roads or other public places, but which of course have been very widely used, and really to help the government, to support the government in finding the information they need to make the decisions they have to make on regulation. So it's one of the subjects which I've just sort of acquired by default. And over three years later, here we still are trying to bring it to a resolution. Exactly the same thing happened to me, Paul. It was, do you mind sitting in on this call about e-scooters and then three and a bit years later, I find myself having the same conversations we've been having for three and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get on to the latest news from the Texas State of Transport's announcement of Mark Harper, can you just help us, Paul, with a little bit of the present situation? So, as you say, privately owned e-scooters on roads are currently illegal. But what is the present situation in terms of insurance and MID? Well, the current situation is that e-scooters are classified as vehicles. They're actually technically mopeds under the RTA and the MIB under its agreements with the DFT has to compensate the third-party victims of accidents caused by uninsured or hit-and-run vehicles. So as e-scooters are illegal for use on roads, they cannot be insured, cannot get third-party liability insurance even if you wanted to. And so essentially, we are compensating the victims of accidents caused by all the privately owned e-scooters. The ones under the government trials are, of course, very different, and they are subject to an insurance requirement. But if it's a privately owned e-scooter and it causes third-party damages, then we have to compensate. It doesn't apply to the rider themselves. They obviously are the first party, and our obligation is to compensate third parties. Right. So, of course, any private e-scooter that's involved with a collision with another person, that person would have a claim that would have to be picked up by MIB. Yes, we would accept the claim for consideration. Our claims handlers would then have to investigate exactly what has happened and where liability lay. But if there's a valid claim, then we will compensate, yes. If you think about with car insurance and with the requirements for insurance, there's sort of the hit and run or the uninsured driver is a relatively small proportion of the potential claims, but it, the entirety of the potential claims was done privately scooters. 
Yeah, well, when it comes to privately owned e-scooters, yeah, that's the nature of the beast because they're all illegal. So there aren't any privately owned e-scooters out there that are insured. Okay, so in terms of numbers, what kind of problem is this representing? Yeah, and perhaps before answering that, it's worth defining what the problem is, because it is a problem from the MIB's perspective. And the problem is that the MIB is funded by a levy on motor insurance. So all vehicle owners in the UK contribute to the levy in the form of a very small proportion of their motor insurance premium. So from our perspective, the claims we're paying for e-scooters in respect of e-scooters, in respect of damages caused by e-scooters, are unfunded. They're not funded by the cohort of users of that particular type of vehicle because there is no insurance. So the fundamental problem for us is that costs in this regard are being met by drivers of normal, in inverted commas, vehicles, and that is not fair, quite simply. So that's the nature of the problem. The extent of the problem at the moment is not huge, but it is growing. It's on a clear upward trajectory. We have somewhere in the region of 100 claims at the moment, and a couple of those are major. They're, they're into the millions of pounds reserve because they're serious injuries. So the problem is it's enough to concern us already, but it's the continuing upwards trajectory, which I think is inevitable, which is the real concern. So looking at it as where to go next with the, so the government, which I'm assuming might be the next step that Emily was going to talk about, it, when you began this, you said that e-scooters are defined as a motor vehicle and you can't insure them. So moving forwards, whenever that may be, and that's going to be another conversation we have in a moment, it's going to be redefining them so they're not a motor vehicle, so MIB don't have to pick things up. But then if there's going to be an insurance cover in place, from what you're seeing in terms of what you just said into levels of claims, let's just work with a figure of 100, but some very expensive ones. If they get no longer defined as a motor vehicle, but they haven't got insurance in place, there is then the potential that there's some seriously injured people who would be receiving no compensation. I mean, there are many unknowns there as to what the DFT are likely to decide. If they decide to as you say, redefine them as not being motor vehicles, they could still apply a compulsory insurance requirement. This would be breaking new grounds because there is no existing category of vehicles which are different to normal road vehicles, which have a different form of insurance. So it clearly wouldn't be MTPL insurance, but if it was a compulsory form of third-party liability insurance, we could certainly look at a possible model to generate a contribution to the MIB's levy. And if that contribution were sufficient, I'm sure the MIB would agree to to uh, stand as the fund of last resort for e-scooters. But that's one of the unknowns. It, you know, it's a, a, a second unknown is whether the DFT might simply say no insurance requirement at all. And that has been done in some countries. When we look at analogous countries, you see that some have an insurance requirement and some have chosen not to. They've chosen to treat them more like bicycles. And if there was no requirement at all, then just as in the case with bicycles at the moment, yes, you're right, it's, there would be the potential for third-party damages and injuries and there would be no fund to compensate from. The injured party would have to sue the uh, e-scooter user. The Tosis we have of the e-bicycle and the regulation around there with no requirement for there to be insurance, 
But we have very little hint of what's going to happen with the e-scooters. And as we know, there was a naming of a potential category of the LZEV, the low speed zero emission vehicle, which was the confirmed intentions of Jesse Norman when speaking on the 22nd of November as the Minister of State for the DFT. So we've been told there's likely to be a new category distinct from both cycles and motor vehicles, of which the first iteration will be e-scooters. But that's about it, really, isn't it? There's no decision about regulations or what might happen there. Yeah, there isn't, Emily. But that development in itself was quite interesting. As you say, it's very recent because, yeah, Jesse Norman did say that it's going to be a category between bicycles, in which I take it he means EAPCs, the electrically assisted pedal cycles, and vehicles. So it's somewhere in between. Now, that is an interesting step forward in the thinking. And I, but I, should say this goes back quite a long way because the DFT were consulting from memory, I think, in early to mid-2020 and the consultation that was issued at that time said quite clearly they were considering treating them in exactly the same way as EAPCs. And that was actually said in black and white in the consultation. So this does seem to have been some movement, which is interesting because if they treated them as EAPCs, there would be no insurance requirement. So, so it begs the question, maybe the government is thinking of a possible requirement. Well, if you think about it, Paul, quite a lot has happened since the beginning of 2020 in terms of the government trials that are in place. And they've been extended multiple times now with the the explanation that they need more data and more evidence. And right back at the beginning... People didn't know how people would ride e-scooters. And I think the evidence that seems to be coming out through the PACS reports and everything else is that they are being ridden differently to electric bikes, so they can't be dealt with in the same category. Have you got any views on that? Yeah, I've read the PACS report. I know the people behind it, and I know it's a very well-researched report. It's very authoritative. So I, I give a lot of credence to what that report says. And actually, when you think about it, as I have since reading the report, and just looking around the streets of London, the rental scooters, are, firstly, they're very visibly different to the privately owned ones. They're much larger, they're colourful, they attract tension. In London, I'm not sure about other areas, but in London, the wheels have to be a minimum 12-inch diameter, which I think is larger than any of the ones being sold for private use. And of course, they are effectively speed limited. You know, they have speed limiters on them. In London, it's 12 and a half miles an hour. And Clearly, if you're just going to hire a scooter for two hours, you're not going to disconnect the speed limiter. Whereas it's famously the case that even with speed limited private scooters, the limiter can easily be disconnected. So there's a whole load of differences. And before you even get into the structural requirements and the quality of the brakes and the performance of the braking system, the integration of lights, you know, I've seen, I did some research just recently for another talk and there are, you know, the cheaper e-scooters on sale are tiny. They tend to be grey or black. They don't come with lights. And I have no idea what the brakes are like, but I imagine they're not fantastic. And the wheels are tiny. So those are all very radical differences. And then a the key difference, as they note in the PAX report, is geofencing, because most of the trial scooters are geofenced. That's a GPS system which observes how and where they're being used. And the best ones can literally identify if they go on a pavement and disable them. So none of that is a realistic proposition for 
privately owned e-scooters. Because I know there's been a suggestion that there should be a speed limit. And of course, that brings with the problem of how you prevent people disabling any speed system there is. And whether there should be compulsory insurance or not. But whether or not there should be geofencing, I mean, the suggestion that once you have privately owned and privately regulated e-scooters, they could somehow be subject to geofencing. Of course, the geofencing is sort of acceptable because you need to measure how far you go for paying when you're renting it. But beyond that, the idea that you'd buy an e-scooter and, and sort of consent to being measured and watched everywhere you go, it's much harder to understand that that could possibly gain traction. The geofencing that they have now is the mental ones will also limit your speed in a certain part of London when it slows you right down. Yeah, that's very impressive when they do apply geofencing. No, but I think some confusion was introduced several months ago when the previous Secretary of State, Grant Chaps, was before the Transport Committee in the House of Commons and he was asked about the standard of regulation. He said it was going to be at least as good as the trials and I think he actually mentioned geofencing as one of the possibilities. I don't think he was speaking from any briefing provided to him by his officials and because he said that, it's something I've looked into and I've talked to various people And essentially, it's really not a possibility. You'd have to establish some sort of authority to do the geofencing. And then you're talking in sort of major new structures. And nobody is talking about that. So I think geofencing is, I think that was a red herring which crept into the debate, maybe because of that House of Commons committee hearing. But it's really not a possibility. So then you have to look at the regulations that you require for private e-scooters. And when it is limitations including speed limitation, of course, enforcement then becomes really important. And The Guardian did a little bit of investigation. They sent a reporter around with a private e-scooter which had a limiter on it and found various workshops in different parts of the country who offered probably for a fiver or something to disconnect the limiter and they could do it in minutes. And in terms of one of the articles I've read as well is that one police force were told that unless they could safely stop an e-scooter rider as well without injury to the e-scooter rider or the police officer, that they shouldn't be trying to stop them either. So even if they can, I don't know, speed gun them to see what speed they're going, they won't be able to stop them because they can't safely do it either. And that's another issue moving forward with enforcement. What powers are the police going to have to try and stop people on the e-scooters? I had an e-scooter overtake me on the M32 motorway. I was in the 40 mile an hour zone and I was chugging along at just under 40 like a good girl and an e-scooter, a private e-scooter overtook me, all dressed in black. He did have a helmet on because he must have been doing 45. And so he overtook me on the motorway. So when you've got e-scooters doing that kind of speed, how do you safely stop them? I was just going to add, of course, they have no form of identification. So if they're caught in a camera they're anonymous. If you see them pass you on the motorway, you can't report it to anyone because it's just, you know, there's no number plate essentially, so unidentifiable. Yeah, if I'd have had a dash cam footage to report it to anybody, they wouldn't have been able to track them down. It would have just been, look, here's another e-scooter doing, (laughs) illegal e-scooter doing what we all are worried about. But of course, that's no different from bicycles. And it is a combination, I think, of the speed of them that you can't readily identify bicycles, but there does seem to be a sort of gum honeth as well to the use of them, where there is far greater degree of antisocial 
scootering than there is cycling with scooters sort of on and off pavements and weaving in and out of pedestrians in a way that bikes just don't seem to do. And whether that's the nature of the transport itself or the nature of the cohort of the user, I'm not sure, but certainly they create a greater degree of miscreant than bicycles seem to. And it's not a UK-based issue either, because in France, in particular Paris at the moment, they're looking at even tougher regulations than they've had before because of exactly what you've just been outlining, people complaining about e-scooters on the pavements. So they're looking at introducing number plates, all of these other different things. But this is on the higher scooters, that their higher scooters weren't as restricted as ours are. So it's moving forwards. Are we looking at compulsory insurance? Are we looking at speed limits? Are we looking at driving tests, licences, provisional licences, limits on insurance? Where do we see things going? Paul, what would your top picks be after having had quite an involvement in this for the last two, three years? What areas do you think specifically really have to be considered by the government when they get round to it? Well, I think all of the above of what you've just listed, they have to consider where they come out. It's going to be political decisions all the way because... At the end of the day, it's a new kind of vehicle. Every vehicle has its dangers, both for the rider and for third parties. So it's a balance. And all those issues you mentioned, there has to be a political decision. For instance, you know, requiring or not helmets. They've required them in Germany. They didn't require them in France. It's a perfectly justifiable requirement because the statistics will show that a rider who comes off their machine very likely to hit their head and an unprotected human cranium is very vulnerable indeed so wearing um, a helmet is uh, just for a requirement but our government I think it's true to say doesn't like to be very strict in requiring such things they prefer to make them advisory voluntary I think there's also that problem of encouraging people to use them. You know, one thing that you could be the kind of thing that you just grab and jump on to pop down to the shop or, you know, the last mile transport and not get in your car. So it has to be as easy as possible. And then it sort of encumbers that ease like a helmet or special equipment. I think there is partly a desire not to regulate and control the individual, but I think there's partly also data that shows the more barriers you push in place, even if it's as tiny as picking up a helmet, the more of a chilling effect you'll have on people. Well, I think that is, and I think the government, I think at some stages, government ministers have actually said that's part of their consideration. I should say from the MIB's point of view, the focus is on insurance, whether there's going to be a statutory insurance requirement, if there is, whether we can stand behind it. I outlined earlier some of the conditions we'd have for doing that. And if there isn't, then the MIB will be taking the view that it cannot stand behind the uh, introduction of e-scooters on the same level as EAPCs, where there's no insurance requirement, as in that case, the MIB will not be compensating third-party victims. So that's the focus of our interest. The MIB, by its very nature, exists to compensate the third-party victims of road collision. So it's not a situation we would be particularly happy with but if it's the decision the government makes then obviously we have to go with it and you know i say once again it's a it's a political decision the, these decisions are really not easy because you're either going to decide to put additional cost on e-scooter users and the same sort of arguments begin to kick in if you have an insurance requirement how many people is that going to put off using this new form of transport which the government does want to encourage but then if you don't have one 
how many people are you going to leave exposed to possibly having no route to compensation? By not having an insurance requirement, you do actually expose the rider themselves to possible financial damage because if they hit somebody, they're not insured. Well, even if the, whether the MIB is standing in or not, you know, we compensate a victim and we know who the rider was, we will pursue them to recover our damages. And if there isn't an insurance requirement, the victim obviously can sue, will sue the rider, and the damages awarded may be more than their lifetime savings. I see that as a very strong argument, actually, for requiring insurance, and that it protects the riders themselves from potential financial ruin. But, you know, that's all part in the pot, and it's the government's job to sort it all out and decide what sort of regime they want to go with. And of course, we know, disappointingly, whatever that sorting out is, it's been kicked down the path a bit, hasn't it? So Mark Harper, Secretary of State for Transport, and you were talking about Grant Schaff, the group's successor, Mark Harper, the 25th of October, made an appearance in front of the Transport Select Committee. Basically, I think the term is to kibosh the transport bill. But I mean, effectively, to say, there's just no prospects of the transport bill being put before Parliament in this current session, despite its introduction to Queen's Beach. To be fair, he did say he was going to come back to the committee with further thoughts on the matter. But the clear impression from that session is that Department for Transport is being overruled, presumably by the Cabinet Office. And then it's all about the government's priorities, what they can and what they can't give parliamentary time for. All the way down the line, it's political decisions. But, you know, you mentioned it being kicked down the line quite a long time. Three years is a long time. And I remember it's over three years now when I started dealing with this. They were already very common sight on the streets of London. And in that time, of course, the French and the Germans have regulated. They both regulated in mid-2019. So that's over three years ago now. Well, they've had the same issues we've had in terms of COVID. Everyone's got cost of living. They've got issues moving forward. War in Ukraine is affecting everyone. So all of these political issues are affecting every other country. But as you've pointed out, I suppose they were a bit ahead of the curve before everything really started hitting in 2020 to have already started to legislate, whereas we had only just put in, as you said, the consultation document and the first trial didn't begin until the summer of 2020. The timing is actually quite interesting, Caroline, as well, because in 2019, of course, the French and Germans, they got in before COVID. So that, and obviously, you know, the, I think the Germans were June 2019 and the French, I think, were October. Both of them were before COVID was really being talked about. And of course, they must have had months and months of work leading up to the decisions they took. So they did get in early and maybe it was a stroke of luck that they got in before COVID threw everyone's life into turmoil. But against that, they decided they could regulate them as vehicles because at that stage, there was no scope within the European Union laws to carve them out as a special form of a vehicle, which really isn't a vehicle, you know. And so I would say there are really interesting lessons to be learned from how were they able to do that. They regulated them, they applied an insurance requirement, and they did it all within the framework at the time. And that framework changed at the end of last year when the European Union relaxed its rules on the definition of a vehicle specifically for e-scooters and they allowed e-scooters to be carved out and basically for machines which limited to 25 kilometers an hour or less and which weigh 25 kilos or less they can be regulated as 
not being vehicles and in any way the country wishes. There are no sort of obligations in terms of insurance or helmets or all that stuff. And so since the end of 21, several additional European countries have regulated e-scooters according to that new regime. And, you know, we're, we're still looking at an inability to push the primary legislation through, which, you know, subject to what Mr. Harper comes back and tells the committee, it really is looking as if this parliamentary session, nothing's going to move. So there's a lot of lessons from other countries which could provide the government with a lot of food for thought as to how its own blueprint should look. The Republic of Ireland are... I think it's going to be final push through in the beginning of next year and they're going to have legislated within the last year and yeah, they'll be ahead of us as well. With the announcement of the combination of the announcement of the pushing it back down the line and also Jesse Norman saying that there's going to be a new vehicle, the LZEV, and that there's going to be consultation as to the outcome of the e-scooter trials, that suggests quite a long tail because both primary legislation required for the distinct category and then consultation before that. So it certainly doesn't look as if anything is going to be happening anytime soon. And I suppose the other issue we have next year, as you were saying about this parliamentary session and then we go into the next one after the next King's speech, there's going to be an election at some point as well, which is going to have to kick in and are they really going to be focused on things like this? But we're ever hopeful we will get there sooner rather than later. I don't know about you, Paul. I think we need to do something. Whether or not it's the correct thing and needs altering, I don't know. But we need to get something moving. Otherwise, we're going to have at least another year of this. Well, that's certainly what the MIB wants. And it's why we're supporting the government in whatever way we can. In the past year, we've had two roundtable meetings bringing the industry together with DFT officials, industry representatives, the trade associations, etc. And all sides have been trying to help by providing whatever information they can. Our particular focus is uh, insurance, but there are all sorts of other angles to the regulation. And in terms of, I, I must admit, until the select committee hearing last week, I was quite optimistic that things really were going to move now. And let's see what Mr. Harper comes up with. That's the first thing. The, the real stumbling block is the need for primary legislation. And that, that is needed because they need to carve something out of the RTA, essentially. And I think all concerned have concluded that can't be done without primary legislation. So that first step, which you know, the latest iteration in the thinking is, yes, the creation of this new category, LZEV. Yeah, no speed, zero emission vehicle, LZEV. So that's the thing that needs to be created by primary legislation. And following that, yes, Jesse Norman said that the government would then consult that e-scooters would be the first thing to be regulated because their idea is that they could use the category as an umbrella for regulating different kinds of personal transporters. So e-scooters, we see hoverboards flying around. What else are there? There's electrically powered skateboards, which I often see on segways and no doubt there are more things which we can't even imagine which will come out of nowhere and suddenly be all over the place so the idea i think is a good one to have a category that that will allow you to do your regulation and the regulation will be secondary legislation which can go through very quickly although you know it seems nowadays that governments government departments just feel they have to consult before they 
take a step forward on anything at all. So there'll be the consultation and then there'll be the regulation and it will take a few months. But, you know, that's manageable. The stumbling block is the primary legislation and it's difficult to see a way around it when you think of all the other huge issues on the government plate, the things that they need to deal with in Parliament. It's very easy for there just to be no government time left for whatever additional things they want to do. And I fear this is likely to fall into that category, but we shall see. I was just describing to a colleague when you've got work to do and you've got the really horrible things to do, but a nice easy task comes in. So you do them off the big things just because it's something easy. But this isn't an easy thing that they could just do to help when they're having to deal with, as you said, cost of living and everything else. This is still a big thing. Do you know what I think when you go back, because another thing which I spotted Jesse Norman said in, in a debate, they, uh, the, an MP was challenging him why on earth the department hadn't done something earlier. And one of the things he said was that other countries had regulated but were now having to change their regulations because they hadn't got it entirely right. And you've just illustrated that by saying that in Paris they're looking at new rules because they're being used on payment. I mean, whatever it is they haven't covered, they're looking at covering an additional regulation. But actually, when you look at the French and Germans who did it three and a half years ago, they probably did do it when it was quite easy because the things were coming on, governments had to make decisions or just leave it in abeyance. But they made a quick decision and the Germans have adjusted their regulations since they introduced them as well. But, you know, maybe actually the correct answer, the correct approach is get it done quickly and then amend it, then develop it, then perfect it in line with things that emerged during the experience and the fact that our government has taken the opposite approach you know we can't do anything until we do everything our ICA will continue to cause delays well I think what you have as you say is you get that problem but it becomes a bigger and bigger problem and you know things like what do you do with all the illegal excuses that currently exist do you bring them in do you change them do you give them regulations to adhere to do you give them a moratorium you know, and if you've done it when there's only a few, it wouldn't matter. But now there's, what, half a million, a million, more and more on the road. It becomes, you know, more and more difficult. And doing something is better. The French did a really neat thing, though, in my opinion, Emily. They said, we're going to legalise these things. We're going to do it straight away. So if you have one, you can continue using it. But within nine months, they had a nine-month period of grace so they said, within nine months, you must have lights fitted, you must have this done, that done. But the one thing they gave no leeway to was speed limiting. They said, if you've got an e-scooter that can do more than 25 kilometers an hour, you have to get a speed limiter fitted. And in conjunction with that, they said, anyone from now on caught with an e-scooter capable of doing more than 25 kilometers an hour, it will be confiscated. And they had a range of fines, automatic fines, and the highest one was for riding a speed-unlimited e-scooter. So I thought that was a very neat solution to a problem. A, as you say, three years ago, there weren't so many around on the streets, and they showed, I thought, great intelligence in giving that sort of grace period, but no grace at all on limiting the speed. So they sent a very clear message out that, you know, any machine that's able to go at more than 25 kilometers an hour would just be completely unacceptable. You know, I 
So I thought that was really clever. That was over three years ago. Okay, so last question, Paul. Thank you so much for your time. If you were to get one thing under the Christmas tree, one thing from the Santa's sack, one thing for in the e-scooter world in its relation to MID, what would that be? Well, it would be a resolution of the regulation conundrum. And I wouldn't say what the resolution would be because I, I repeat at the end of the day, the, these things are difficult because they're political and for every decision you make, there's a positive side and a negative side. So, and I've already mentioned from, you know, our, I think the MIB's ideal situation would be a, a statutory insurance requirement that we can stand behind as the fund of last resort. That's all positive. The negative is that it would come with a cost and the government would have to tell e-scooter users, including all those hundreds of thousands out there now, you have to get insured and then because that would have a certain cost to it. And nobody knows what the cost is, but it would have a cost. That would be an unpopular message. And then, of course, there'd have to be some method of enforcement as well for those that didn't. Well, that's true. And that's the other reason why, you know, resolution, I, I mean, I don't define it I, really any more than saying resolution of this situation, because what we have at the moment is a Wild West situation, and it's really not a good place to be. And the resolution will involve a whole series of political decisions. If there is no insurance requirement, the government is going to have to explain to the public and that there is no compensation or potentially victims with serious injuries will have no route to compensation. Every way you look, it's a political decision that only a government can take. So, okay, to wrap that up, it will be some regulation to end this Wild West situation, ideally leading MIB to be able to continue in its role as the funder of last resort for the victims of e-scooter accident. Yeah, I'll go for that. That's a very good summary. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Paul, for coming and sharing your words of wisdom and great learning with us. It's been a real pleasure to have you as our final guest of 2022. Thank you, Paul. Pleasure's been all mine. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, Caroline. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barrister's Chambers, 39 Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeechcraft.com and 39essex.com.